0: Yeah.
1: Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Right. Main man. I was once described as the manager, the mentor, and the visionary who went to the theatre with an unfocused dilettante and raised the curtain on a superstar.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 24 in our series exploring the history of the management rights company Mainman, which was renowned in the 70s for transforming the business of rock and roll. While allowing Mainman artists to explore their creative freedom, the company pioneered promotion and marketing techniques that became synonymous with the decadence, extravagance and indulgences that are now part of rock
1: folklore. Nobody can imagine what it was like, the way Main Man stormed into New York.
0: Main Man worked with a very diverse range of clients. It included people like Amanda Lear, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, John Mellencamp, Dana Gillespie, Moth the Hoople, Mick Ralphs, Iggy Pop and David Bowie.
1: When the evening was over, I'm at the back of the marquee brushing my then waist-length hair in the mirror and he comes up and takes the brush out of my hair, carries on brushing and says, can I come home with you tonight? And I said yes.
0: In this episode, Tony DeFreeze continues his recollections of the collaborations between the legendary guitar god from Hull and the small-town boy from Seymour, Indiana, who dreamed of becoming a rock star and how Mick Ronson and John Mellencamp worked together for many years up until Rono's untimely death in 1993. In the last episode, De explained how the pair first met working on John's debut album in 1975. Here, he continues the story the following year when the Chestnut Street Incident LP had been released and John was back in Indiana with not just a new album, but also a new name. And Johnny Cougar is on the road with the main man team.
1: There's a lot of interesting things that happen in the media business or the music business that are connected in ways that aren't immediately obvious the fallout function i call it or the connection has always been for me very interesting so here we are back at the radio station with we got two real cougars with trainers of course and two very pretty girls in really skimpy costumes and we introduced them to a radio station we got all the licenses and permits of course but we didn't tell the dj so what we were able to achieve was and of course john went along for the whole thing he wasn't exactly thrilled to be around these live cougars but you know it was part of the necessary exercise it got an enormous response of course because if you're in indiana and you're in a local radio station, and the DJ says, and here I want to introduce John Cougar. And what is this? There are real Cougars here. There are real Cougars in the station. Unfortunately, it was before the age of smartphones, but people are immediately saying to me, did you hear what happened on this radio station? And listening, ultimately, of course, to the song. And that's the point of the exercise. Get people to pay attention to the song all of this was actually going on quite well, and according to plan, and albeit the being on the road in Indiana wasn't the greatest fun, it was still better than being trapped in Seymour and not having a destination in sight or a place to go. John was growing, he was moving, he was developing, and then disaster struck. And that's the other problem. you You can't control the behavior of large corporations if you are working with or for a corporation like MCA, which is simply part of a much larger corporate entity. So the record company is just one division in a very large corporate entity with many different divisions. And here's one minor artist on a label that's got a lot of very successful artists. When the upper level of management of the corporate entity that owns the record company decides to make a change there's usually no warning and it's normally the result of some major upset not within the record company itself but within the board of executive directors who control the larger corporation the larger corporation in this case mca Corp had been observing for many years Mike Maitland, who was the head of the record company. He was the CEO. He had a problem, which he had been trying to manage and trying to conceal for quite a long time. And his problem was essentially that he drank too much when he was on the job. Now, being on the job as the head of a major record company, apart from having to manage the company as any CEO. You really have to be the public face of the company. And as the public face, his reliance on alcohol was getting a bad rap, and it was getting too much attention. None of this was in any way, shape, or form related to our little record deal and our current record. Unfortunately for John, of course, it was a major factor. When Mike Maitland attended one too many industry events, which are closely watched and closely reported on, and literally fell off a plane um, staircase, one of those staircases they wheel up to your plane. He fell off the plane, and it was caught on camera, it was commented on, so he was gone from one day to the next. When this happens at a major record company, the incoming manager or CEO, the person who's now in charge, whether it's temporary or permanent, is going to be responsible for whatever his predecessor or her predecessor has done. If those acts that were signed by the predecessor have had hits, have got significant record sales, they'll keep them. If they haven't, they will not renew them or they will terminate their contracts simply because they don't want to be tarred with the same brush as the person who was there last. So even if the person who was there wasn't disgraced, as Mike was, but was actually just let go or even retired or resigned or moved on in the ordinary course of business, that the incomer would say, I don't want to be attached to anything that might Look bad on my sheet, on my turn of duty, on my record. I only want good acts and successful acts and acts with hit records. And if they haven't got those and they're still in the uncertain stage and there isn't any real indication that they're going to make it, then I better not take the risk. I'd rather sign up acts that I believe in, that I discovered, that I was recommended by my team. So suddenly, his team or her team becomes the team who decides. The team that were already there might fit in or they might not, depends on what they're supporting or what they were supporting or a whole variety of factors. So in this case, we had two key people who were lost to us at MCA. One of them was Rob Davis. Rob Davis was Probably a junior a person, but he was the person at MCA who had originally heard whatever demo we presented, and he became a fan. He liked what he heard, he thought there was something there, and he was one of the people who persuaded, probably the most important person who persuaded um, MCA to sign up on John. And to make a deal. The deal that I made with MCA was not just a deal for Don, it was a deal for Main Man as a label, and John was the first release on that label, and Mick Ronson was going to be a second release, and so on. We don't know how many other artists might have gone onto that label if we'd carried on and gone forward. We had other artists for sure. What we do know is that Rob Davis continued to be a fan of John's even after the changeover, and he became one of the casualties. Another casualty was John Scott. In Rob's case, I was quite happy to encourage him to carry on working with John as a hands-on manager on the interim, so until we could find another label or another distributor or another record company and make another record deal, I encouraged him to work with John And he was ultimately responsible for finding the Billy Gaff-Rod Stewart connection that gave John his next label entry and led to eventually successful recordings. The other casualty created a very different fallout and was actually an indirect result of Main Man and I and John Mellencamp creating another successful and ultimately, although he's since passed away, but he was a successful and very well liked and very well appreciated by a lot of people, including Dylan and George Harrison. Tom Petty. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers was at this time on a label called ABC Records. John Scott was the promo man for MCA who had been working on Mellencamp and he'd been trying very hard to get Mike Maitland and other people at MCA to spend more money on promoting John. He was trying to push forward an agenda that I'd suggested to MCA that would call for putting a very large and visible billboard on Sunset Strip featuring John. It was quite rare for people to put up large billboards in prominent places (laughs) like Times Square or Sunset Strip. And record companies weren't wild about doing it unless it was an artist like Barbara Streisand who'd made an album called Guilty with the Bee Gees which sold 20 million copies, that's okay wasn't that popular when I did it with David, but RCA were willing to step up. wasn't that popular when I did it with Ronson, but they were still willing to step up. And of course, we did it for our own purposes when we wanted to promote something like Fame, the play that we'd made with uh, Ingrassia. But for RCA, it was a definite no-no. And so John Scott was another casualty of the Mellencamp, failure if you like it wasn't really a failure actually in a way John succeeded because when Maitland left MCA indicated that they weren't going to put out a second album I promptly arranged to get a release of the label deal that I'd made with them because there was no point staying on there and waiting for what would not happen i.e. they weren't going to put out another Mellencamp album and I then had to go and look for another label So that was my next step. And this means we've got the Chestnut Street album, which was released in 1976, produced by me with the feature song arranged by me, and it's now reverted back to us. In the meantime, we made a second album called The Kid Inside, which we've completed, but which we now not obliged to give to MCA. So we have two albums. We haven't got any reason to, or at this point, place to release the second Kid Inside album. So we decide we'll keep it until there's a moment when it's viable to release it. And meanwhile, we'll start looking for another label. John Scott goes to Charlie Minor, who's an old friend of his, who's also a radio promotion man, but of a much senior sort at this point. And Charlie Minor is the head of radio and general promotion, press promotion probably as well, at ABC Records. And he says, come and work for me. So off John Scott goes to work at ABC Records. And one of the things he finds when he gets there is a fairly new, as he puts it, He's going through some cupboards one day and he comes across a white label. That's what the industry used to call a test pressing, it would be called, of a recording that had been made and was being used for promotional purposes or in order to get a deal or to get feedback and so on. He finds this white label and he listens to it. And it's Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, who he's never heard of, and pretty much nobody else has either, actually, at this point. This is the very first record they've made. And he's wild about it. So he immediately goes to Charlie and says, listen to this. And Charlie says, well, where'd you get that? he said, well, it's been sitting in a cupboard here. Nobody's playing it. So Charlie says, well, let's get people playing it. And John Scott and Tom Petty um, actually said this himself, before he died that John Scott was totally responsible for getting him radio play on that very first record and essentially then by default John Mellencamp made Tom Petty successful and famous without even knowing that he had any hand in that. That's how the music business works it's a large almost organic mess which proceeds in fits and starts without any real order or direction, half the time nobody knows why any artist actually succeeds. It's a guessing game, it's a crapshoot, it's luck, it's hard work, it's determination, and most of it is completely out of your control. As long as you know that You can have a lot of fun doing stuff. What's not fun, of course, is when you get a very unhappy artist, which is what happens next in this story. John is furious that he's been dropped by the first major label that he's ever had. He's furious that his album's not going to be promoted anymore and that his band isn't going to be supported anymore. And you can't really blame him. It's not like it was his fault. But on the other hand, being angry about something that you have no control over doesn't necessarily help you. It tends to lead to a lot of frustration. And in John's case, it definitely led to a lot of unhappiness. Some of the band didn't come back. Most of them did. It wasn't that long before he got another record deal. So ultimately, it played out. Um, His Reva deal gave him a number of albums which included American Fall and actually included albums after that as well that were of course successful because by this time John was a superstar. So he had enough clout to now make things like Little Pink Houses, which is a very nice song on a different album. He would clout enough to go and do all kinds of farm aid projects, which he did with Willie Nelson and with Dylan. And he got to be in the major league from being a self-described runt in the no league. (laughs) So not a bad journey, but some bumps in the road and some hard times and some very frustrating experiences like this one. And for myself, for somebody who has taken all the risk, done all the work, been entirely supportive of my artist and what they need. It's not great to discover that the person you've done all this for is now blaming you for something that is completely unseen. It's like blaming you for the dam that collapsed or the earthquake that happened. It's not something you had any control over or foresight on. So you can't really responsible for it. But in John's case, he needed somebody to blame. So he blamed me. We fell out, but we remained going forward on recently, or reasonably good terms. But in the meantime, when it came to the moment of needing essential help, he reached out to Mick Ronson and he got a hit record. So what more can you really ask for than that? Hey, anyway, that's the story of John and the Chestnut Street incident, because this was the Chestnut Street <laughs> incident. Unfortunately, this is what happened. Chestnut Street was caught up in a crossfire. Not of his making, not of my making, but good things came from it. So meanwhile, I've got to find another outlet for John's music, and I go and talk to all the major record companies, all of whom I know on first-name terms. And astonishingly, but not really surprisingly, none of them are interested in this young John Cougar Mellencamp performer, singer, songwriter. All these companies and all these people, particularly the Clive Davises and the Arnold Erteguns of the world, have had successful acts with me. And from me. RCA obviously has had successful acts with me, from me. Clive Davis is on record as saying that he really regrets missing signing Mellencamp because he thought he was too close to Springsteen. And that wasn't, in fact, the case. So I go to California because I need to go there for other reasons. But I also know that I can go and see people there like Jerry Moss and uh, Mo Austin, Joe Smith, the A&M, Warner entities, and see if I can get them interested in doing a replacement deal for MCA and becoming a label for us, or just taking up the next or a next license for Mellencamp. Whilst I'm there, I discover there's going to be a whiskey run of shows, by Debbie Harry. Now Debbie Harry is somebody that I've known for a while. She becomes Blondie, or at this point she is Blondie, and this is quite early on in Blondie's uh, career. Before she was Blondie, she was in the band called The Stilettos, which was also pretty much her band. And she's well known to a lot of my staff and artists, actually. So Jamie Andrews, for example, who's a photographer, has done a lot of um, pictures of Debbie when she was in the stilettos of Debbie on her own because she's a very photogenic girl. And likewise, some of the other main man folk, because Jamie also is a performer. He was in various uh, Andy Warhol-inspired plays, including Pork, but he's also our... um, president at this point a main man so he's the main man president but he's still active and involved in that maxis kansas city and new york underground scene and this is where the stilettos have been playing for quite a while and this is where blondie is eventually formed and becomes a chrysalis act and a successful act Debbie reached out to Ingracia when she moved into his building and he, and this was also in the main man era, he became her um, stage director and general performance director whilst they were still in the stilettos and before they, she and her girlfriend who were in the stilettos together and Chris Stein who was her boyfriend all ended up forming Blondie. And they used a lot of the techniques that Ingrassi had taught them and that he'd deployed for Pork and that he'd deployed for us. And one of these was on show at that Whiskey concert. It also turned out, well, I didn't know it at the time, that Tom Petty was at her opening act at the Whiskey. This is sometime in um, seventy-seven. probably in February of 77, and it is not long after we've heard the bad news about MCA, of course. So whilst I'm there, I go to see this performance, and I see Tom Petty, and I'm impressed. I hadn't known about him before, but I now sort of know about him because he's there, and he has heard that I'm going to be there, and says he wants to talk to me, so we have a conversation after the show about how he fits into the band and whether he should take a different stance in the band and i do suggest to him that he actually gives himself more of a central place in the band gives himself more exposure in the band in a sense so that it's mostly about him because what i see and hear when i watch this performance is that is mostly about him and he's not really exploiting his full impact in the show he's doing at the time. At that particular show, I didn't ever see her do it again, but Debbie did something really interesting. She had bought or acquired somewhere a paper wedding dress. This is a sort of um, very much part of the Latino culture of when you have certain events in a girl's life, whether it's a wedding or a 16th birthday or some other event that is very important to their culture. They celebrate with big parties and celebrations and very often they'll provide very extravagant dresses for the girls. What's happened over a long period of time is it's become quite often the case to create paper dresses so they can be worn and discarded or worn and kept, but they're less expensive than having to create a full-scale dress from fabric. And this is what Debbie had taken advantage of, this idea, although she's not Latino at all, but she nevertheless thought that it would be useful to get a very, very tightly fitted and very elaborate white dress, like a wedding dress, but was actually paper, so she could tear it off. Um, and as opposed to ripping it off in a way that where it all stayed intact, she literally tore it off. So she tore it to pieces as she was singing. And underneath, of course, she had on a very skimpy, glittery costume. So it was a very effective bit of staging. And looking at it, I could see that it had come from Ingrassia, was very much his style, that it was also influenced by what he did in Fame, which he'd undoubtedly um, seen rehearsals for, or maybe seen the show itself. And it was something that we used in our Ziggy shows and our Diamond Dog shows, where we had velcroed costumes that we could rip on and off. And it was quite a nice effect that David's costumes could be ripped off by these ninja um, people that you didn't see because of lighting techniques so we had girls in black who would come out and rip off the costume and there'd be a skimpier costume underneath or a different costume underneath so that was quite nice to see now Debbie had already indicated that she wanted to talk to me with Chris and she came to talk to me at my hotel after Tom with Chris and she was concerned about the fact that Chris was suffering from a, some kind of autoimmune condition that hadn't really been identified, but they were very close, and the record company that she was with, Chrysalis, were urging her to consider going after a solo career. And she didn't want to do that, but she didn't want to tell them that Chris was sick. And he didn't want to tell them either. And it wasn't on the face of it impairing his playing. It did later impair his playing, but it wasn't at that time. And she was basically saying, how do I get out of going solo and not tell them that it's because Chris is not well enough to carry on if I'm not around. He won't be able to work through another band. So he kind of needs me to keep him current as a writer and also a player in the band. But mostly because she didn't want to let him go. So she didn't want to go solo. But she needed to. And she was scared to tell them literally. In case they then decided to drop her or drop him. So I said, look, I know um, Chris and Terry well. I can talk to them about it and make sure that they don't do anything and you and Chris can try and work it out and hopefully find some kind of treatment for it or at least find out what it is. And I did that and they carried on being Blondie for longer than they would have otherwise. Eventually, Debbie did go solo. But by that time, Chris had found out what was wrong with him and had got some treatment for it.
0: Let's step forward then from the 70s and into the 80s and continue with the Ronson-Mellencamp adventure. Can you tell us how Ronna was really instrumental in helping John create what has become one of his most successful songs?
1: In 1981, John began working on an album at Criteria Studios in Miami. This would be his fourth album for Reva and was ultimately called American Fool. It featured a song called Jack and Diane that became, far and away, John's most successful recording and most successful song. He and the band had recorded some 20 songs and this particular song, Jack and Diane. John describes his acoustic playing of the song, just him and a guitar, where it sounds fabulous. And then his attempt to get the band to play along with him, it sounds terrible. And he brings into the studio a Phil Collins' recording of In the Air Tonight, which he says he wants it to sound like this. And the problem is That particular recording was made by a producer called Hugh Padgham, who was very much an engineer and very engaged in compressing the room ambience and gating reverb drum sounds. And a lot of 1980s productions featured this kind of engineering instrumentation in recordings. But nobody on the Mellencamp team at that point were experienced in these kind of drum sound recordings or these kind of instrumentations. Don Geeman suggests to John, look, if you want that sort of rock and roll sound, why don't you call up Tony DeVries, who made records like that with Bowie, and ask him, or call one of the people you worked with when you were making Chestnut Street. Don and John and the band are all under pressure because they've had a visit from an AR guy. John describes him as a buttoned up pink shirt AR guy. Came down from River and listened to the songs and indicated that they didn't think there was anything there and that they wouldn't put the record out. So this literally increased the pressure. And following Don's suggestion, John then called Mick in New York and asked him if he would come down to Miami and help out with some songs on the album. And Ronson said he would. When he gets to listen to the Jack and Diane song, Ronson suggests that they do a gated echo with a plate and nobody has any idea what he's talking about. (laughs) So Ronson says, make the plate short, put gates on the returns and gate the send. When I did that, Geeman says it was One of those aha moments when you suddenly realize, wow, this is how you make a really hard, crisp drum sound. And one little thing says, this sounds like a rock band. And he literally says, what Mick told us was a gift. He says, I owe Mick Ronson, the hit song Jack and Diane, Because Ronson came down and played three or four tracks on the album and worked on the American Full album for a number of weeks, four or five weeks, largely being involved in all of the tracks that were recorded. But for Jack and Diane, Mick said, Johnny, you should put Baby Rattles on there. And I thought, what the... Does put baby rattles on the record mean? So John says, Mick, put the percussion on. And then he sang the part that says, Let it rock, let it roll, as a choirish type thing. So he really made it into a sort of refrain. And then he put hand claps on the song that went along with the refrain. And eventually we recorded the entire chorus with the entire band. So we had a lot of different voices on the chorus. And this is how that song turned into a hit. And similar tricks were played by Ronson on at least three or four of the other songs on that album. And many of them became hit singles. And that entire recording of American Fool and Jack and Diane I owe to Ronson.
0: Tony DeFries recalling the occasions in the 70s and 80s when Mick Ronson and John Mellencamp worked together. Particularly Mick's invaluable and often overlooked contribution to John's American Fool album, which became one of the biggest selling albums of the 80s. There are some great pieces of rock memorabilia from this period in rock history that are part of an ever-growing archive of Main Man documents, including articles, telexes, letters, contracts, production notes, a lot never seen before. That we are adding to the Main Man label website each week, a great record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. In the next episode, DeFries explains how another incredibly successful musician began his amazing career as a main man artist in the early 70s. Composer Michael Kamen, who was the music director on the now legendary Diamond Dogs Tour in 1974. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.